Good morning, everybody. My name is Dean Hendrickson, and I'm one of the pastors here. I am a, a veterinarian. I teach at the veterinary school in Fort Collins, and you know, I teach a lot. So I get the opportunity to get in front of students and groups on a regular basis. But it's interesting, while there's an importance from which I, I share things when I'm teaching at school and when I'm trying to share things with the students and help them out with the residents or even with veterinarians when I do continuing education, there's nothing I do that's as critical as Sunday morning in opening God's Word. Because this affects lives. This affects future. And I'm so thankful God doesn't depend on me. I'm so grateful that you guys are not absolutely dependent upon the eloquence of my speech or the wisdom that I, I might bring to something or the study that I have or haven't done. That it's not that you're dependent upon me to give you something that will make or break your life. But it is God our King who does that. It is Christ our Savior who died for us. And it's a heavy weight sometimes to teach on Sunday. But it's so cool to know that God is not going to forsake you by letting me have my way. And that's fun. So I'm excited about that. We're taking a little hiatus. So we typically, as, as most of you know, we teach through a book. And we finished up 1 Corinthians. And we're getting ready to start 2 Corinthians right after Labor Day. And we had just a little hiatus. And we're really praying and contemplating where God might take us. And he took us to prayer. And we're really excited about that as a pastor board because it's an area that we really want to shore up in our lives and in the lives of the people here at Windsor Community Church because we just think it's such a critical step. And as one of the ways that we're doing that is that on Wednesday mornings and then on the last Sunday of each month, we open the doors here at the building for prayer. So if you would join us tonight, that would be great. 6.30 to 8 o'clock, the doors are open. We just encourage you if you get an opportunity to come and do that. So last week we studied the Lord's Prayer in Matthew. We went back and we looked at how Jesus taught the disciples to pray. It's a great prayer because the disciples were struggling. There were all sorts of things going on. There were all sorts of role models for prayer then, just like there are now. I mean, there are no shortage of role models out there, and that doesn't always mean it's a good thing. Role models are not always positive individuals, and they do not always have a positive impact. They just are what they are. And it was the same thing during that time. So the hypocrites, which were most likely the leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, were honoring themselves in their prayers. They were not honoring God. They would stand in the middle of a congregation or on a street corner. And the word actually there translates to a very busy street corner or a wide street. And they would make sure that everybody noticed them. When they gave their offering to the poor, they would make sure that everybody noticed them and watched what they did. They would draw attention to themselves. And Christ was teaching the apostles not to be like that. Don't be like that. It's a great prayer, and it gave us a lot of good premises to think about God first, right? It talks about our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Put God in his right position. Where does he really belong? And then it goes on to talk about asking for what we need. 
our daily bread. And then it talks about asking God for forgiveness while at the same time forgiving those around us. And then recognizing God's kingdom. And so it's a wonderful prayer. It is not one to be done rotely. That was never Christ's intent. Christ's intent wasn't for us to pray this just over and over and over without meaning or heart. Now, on the other hand, if you want to pray that back to God with your whole heart and with honoring him through that, amen. But don't get caught up in just rote memorization of things that have no value. And that's, that was the concern and the worry that the Pharisees and the scribes were falling under. So I was praying for God to show me what would come next, right? I knew it was going to be about prayer. And my heart was really to find an Old Testament prayer that we could go back to. And just through a series of bouncing ideas back and forth, Amy and I were talking. We discussed different things. brought me to Psalm 51. And it's a beautiful psalm. But you have to understand the background to Psalm 51, I think, to really understand it. So if we look at Psalm 51, it's really based on the story or, if you will, the happenings of 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. How many of you are familiar with David and Bathsheba? So you've heard those names before. This was a time in David's life where it was not a crowning time for sure. In chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, it talks about that it's time in the spring... Right? It's an interesting time. We don't live in this world anymore, but what a time it must have been. It starts out in verse 1. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to do battle. Right? It's spring. The winter's over. Let's go fight. It's an interesting time. And David, of course, was a mighty warrior. David had been a mighty warrior for his whole life for the most part, fighting lions and bears and, and obviously the giant Philistine. But this time... He stayed home. He sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they sent them out to destroy the sons of Ammon and to besiege Rabbah. But he stayed in Jerusalem. And I don't know why David stayed in Jerusalem. I don't know what caused him to stay there. I don't know if he was getting tired. I don't know if it was his reasoning behind it. Was I just, you know, like Joab's such a good leader. He doesn't really need me. I feel like a fifth wheel whenever we go fight anymore. I don't like the way my armor look. You know, maybe I don't like my tent any longer. It just feels confined. I don't really know what the story was. But I bet you that if David could go back and replay this, he'd have gone to battle. Right? He'd have gone out to war because surely that was better than what happened. And it goes on to talk about that David was standing in the castle or in the king's house. And he was looking out and he saw Bathsheba who was bathing. Right? And that's where life started to go downhill for him. So he called, he inquired about her, he had her sent to him, he slept with her, and we know that she became pregnant, and she sent news back to David that she was pregnant. So David, of course, did the right and honorable thing here. He called Uriah back. He thought, if I get Uriah back, I get him to come home on leave from the army. He'll go in. He'll come in. He's been gone for a while. So surely he'll want to be with his wife. He'll be with his wife. Nobody will know the better. Right? It'll all work out just fine. Well, Uriah was a much more honorable man than David was in his heart at this period of time, and he didn't do that. So he came back, they talked war, they talked strategies, they planned things, and they looped it all over. And then David said, hey, you know, you ought to go back home. Your house is just a little ways from here, I hear. I don't know. And go home and then be with your wife. But Uriah was an honorable man, and Uriah camped outside the gates of the king's palace 
because he felt if his men were out in the front line, then he should not know the comforts of home. Right? If his men can't, he shouldn't. David heard about it. He brought him in. He said, that obviously didn't work. I'll get him drunk and send him home. Surely when he's drunk, he won't be able to stop me. Same thing happened again. Uriah didn't do it. So David recognized that this was a great opportunity to confess and make everything right. And so, no. No, he didn't see that. So instead, he sent a note to Joab by Uriah that said, send Uriah to where the fighting is the most fierce, drop back, leave him alone, so he will be killed. Can you imagine carrying your own death sentence to the king that you honor and admire and respect right back to the front lines, not having a clue that this is the paper that's going to cause you to be killed? And that's what he did. He didn't break the seal because that wasn't his place to do that. If he would have, he could have obviously come back and he could have dealt with all of this. But instead he didn't. He took it, he handed it to Joab. Joab opened it in privacy as he would any of the missives from the king. And he sent Uriah to the front line where the fighting was the most fierce. And he pulled back and Uriah was killed. And it wasn't even that, but David actually went on to set up the whole thing as if he didn't know any of this happened. And when the news came back to him then and to tell him that this horrible thing had happened to Uriah, one of his most faithful military men, his response was, well, why in the world did you allow that to happen? Why did you put someone that close to the wall? You know certainly that even the women could kill our men from there. It was all a put on. It was all a staged thing. And then, of course, Bathsheba, when she heard, mourned. And after her mourning, David brought her to the palace and he married her. That was it, right? Should take care of everything. Everything should be now ironed out and everything will be okay. Except for the fact that that little part about God knowing every little thing that goes on in our lives. And God not willing to allow us to put ourselves in a spot where we ignore what we have done. And so God spoke to Nathan and he sent him to David. And he had a little story. It was a great one. He went to David and he said, there were two men in one city. This is the starting of of chapter 12 in 2 Samuel. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was burned greatly against the man in the story, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. And why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. 
Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. What a sad time in the life of a great king. What do we know about David? What does the word tell us about David? It says things like, David was a man after God's own heart. You know, I don't think it says that anywhere else about anybody else. That was a unique thing. This man, this David, was so loved by God, was so sought after by God, that God brought him from a little shepherd boy into the most powerful position in all of Israel. It was through his lines, his lineage, that the Christ was to come, the Messiah. Can he get better than that? Can you get more than that? And what does God say to him here? If that wouldn't have been enough, David, just ask me. I would have given you more. Because I love you. I cherish you, David. I just don't understand. That's what it was about. In 1 Kings 15.5, it gives us probably, I think, maybe the better window into what this looked like and what David was thought of. By God and all of the people for that matter. In chapter 15, starting at verse 1. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Adjaman became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Machab, the daughter of Abishalom. I love reading Old Testament stuff because I can do the name so well. And he walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, not like the heart of his father David. So it's drawing a comparison or a contrast with this king a couple generations away. And all he was was sin. All he was was about himself. There was nothing positive. And his heart wasn't like that of David. But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. God was not willing, even though this man was a horrid man, to cut off the lineage of David. That's why this man had sons. Not because God loved this man, but because he loved David. But for David's sake, he gave him a lamp. In verse 5, because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. How would you like to see that as your epitaph? This man did everything right except... He committed adultery, and then he had the woman's husband killed so that he could have her. Man, that's tough. So David was a broken man. It goes on to talk about that the child was born, the child died. God required the child's life because it was not the way he would have it. But we know that it's good from here because David responded rightly. David went to God, confessed, and what did God do? After that, anybody know what the rest of the story is? His name is Solomon, the second child born to David in Bathsheba. And what a blessing. Can you imagine that? On one hand, God, through the prophet Nathan, basically said, You know, I gave you everything. I'd have given you more. All you had to do was ask, and yet you couldn't be happy with that? I made you the king. I did these things. I could take it away, but he didn't. So why? Why did God bless David and Bathsheba with Solomon? 
how does that work? That's what we're going to learn today. So a background on Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 is all about this and the answer there. So let's pray and ask God to teach us as we jump into Psalm 51. Dear Lord, we know that this is your word, that this was written down to teach us, and I'm excited to learn. Lord, I have so much more to learn about prayer. I have so much more to learn about you and your character. Would you please continue to grow me and all of us? Would you please continue to teach us all? And Lord, not leave us the same when we walk out of here today than when we walked in. So we give this all to you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Psalm 51 was David's response to God. When he did this, it's broken into, into basically five different areas. A plea for forgiveness, an offer of confession, a prayer for moral cleanliness or cleanness, a promise of renewed service, and then a petition for national restoration. And that's what David was doing in this. So let's start right in and starting at verse 1 of chapter 15 and look at the plea for forgiveness. Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. There's some great things to look at here, and and this is so important for us to understand. Did God forgive David just because he felt like if he didn't, that that would be a black mark on him? He chose the wrong guy. I chose the wrong guy to be the man after my own heart, so if I don't keep forgiving him, that's going to be a problem. Or did God forgive David because it's in the character of God to forgive us? It's his character. But David knew that. And he recognized that he went before God. I can picture David in sackcloth and ashes because we know he did that when the child became ill. I can picture him before God in a position of penitence where he was on his knees or perhaps even flat out begging God, saying, please, God, be gracious to me. I know your character. I know who you are. I know what you have for me with regards to love. There is not a sin possible that God can't forgive. You guys hear that? That is so important to remember. David had a man killed because he was lustful. Did David not have another wife? Could he have not gone to one of his other wives? No. That wasn't the issue. The issue was he was lustful over this woman that wasn't his. And he killed a man because of it. But God is capable of forgiving those sin. When Christ hung on the cross, He died for all sin. Past, present, and future. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to hang on the cross with the weight of some of those most horrid of horrid sins? And you know, He'd have done it without the nails. Because He loves us. Because he cherishes us. Because he made us for him. David knew God's character. It doesn't mean that you should go out from here and see whether you can test my theory. That there is no sin that God can't forgive. 
That's not a good plan. We know that because Paul talks about it. Should we go on sinning just to see how much grace God has? May it never be. Uh-uh. No. We don't want to test God in that. But on the other hand, isn't it cool? Who in here isn't relieved at the statement that God can forgive any sin no matter how horrendous it is? Yeah, I mean, we are the most blessed people. It is not about us. And God can always forgive. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It fit right into the practice of washing for purification. Going into the shower using the world's best antibacterial soap does not clean you from sins. Right? Sprinkling with water that has been blessed does not cleanse you from your sins. This was all a symbolic mention of that. And then David went on to offer his confession. For I, I know my transgressions, Lord, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you, blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire the truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Every time I sin, it affects other people. Other people are involved in that one way or the other. But it also affects God. It cuts him to his core. What David had done was against God's law. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. She then bore him a son who we know then died. But the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. There was nothing good. But David acknowledged, it's my sin. In verse 4, he says, Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He didn't blame it on anybody else. And this is the cool part about David. You know, we can't hide our sins from God. He can see everything. There is nothing in your lives that you have done or you are going to do that he doesn't already know about. It's already there. You may as well accept it. So it's not a point you can run and hide from it. But will you embrace the fact that you need to go to him for it? And that's what David's doing here. In Psalm 139, 1 through 6, David says again, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. And in verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way, in the everlasting way. David knows that God knows everything. So don't run and hide from him. fact is, he's begging God in Psalm 139, Please, God, look for those things that I haven't even recognized I've sinned against you in. And bring them forward so that I might be able to confess them to you. We know that when Christ died on the cross for us, he forgave our sins. Period. There was a deal put in our life that said, paid in full. Not a pay-as-you-go thing. 
Christ didn't set aside a certain amount of forgiveness that we could go in and draw from as we went. It was paid in full, stamped, done. That means that there's not condemnation for us as sinners, but don't ever be slow to go to confession about it either. Run to Him when. You notice I say when, not if. Run to Him when you sin. Like David with a contrite heart, God knows. He said, you desire the truth in the innermost, in our inward parts, is how it translates back. In the very center of our body and our soul, you desire our honesty. He knows it already. He's already forgiven it. He's just waiting for you to give it up. Don't be slow to do that. We move on in verse 7. And now he's asking for moral cleanness. So David recognized God to start with. He recognized his forgiveness. He recognized the character. And he said, God, I am confident that I can bring my sin before you and you will do right with me. Whatever that is, I will trust it. He then went and confessed the sins because in acknowledging God, it's my sin. I did this. I, Lord, am the sinner. You did not test me. You did not tempt me. You did not make me do this. The devil did not make him do that. He chose it all by himself. And he recognized, said, God, you already know I had done it. But I'm asking you to forgive me. And now, God, he moves on. How can David move on here? How can he do this? How can he switch gears? God, please forgive me. Now, I want you to keep me clean. He moves on because he knows God's character. God's already forgiven him. It's done. It is now erased and blotted out. And he's ready to move forward. But he doesn't just forget God. He doesn't turn from God and say, Hey, thanks. Thanks for meeting me here. I feel good. You feel good? We're all good. Uh, see you later. No, he said, God, you know what? The minute I get up from here, I will do it again. I will sin again against you. Help me not to. On my own, I am incapable of not sinning. With him, I can do anything. That's cool. So in verse 7, purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Hyssop was a leafy plant that the priests used to purify people. They would dip it in different things based upon the severity of the sin. If it was a little sin, it could be something like water. If it was a big deal, then it might have to be blood from a sacrifice. And they would sprinkle or spray with that. So it was a symbolic measure of cleansing. Did that clean you? No. But if you came with the right heart for that, then God would clean you through that. I love the concept here where it talks about God washing away sin and cleaning. We see that in Psalm 103, Isaiah 116, and Micah 719. We see all sorts of places in the Bible. It's one of the things we talk about at some level with baptism and total immersion and coming back up a new being, being washed. Now, does the water in our baptismal font contain an anti-sinicide? Right? You've all heard of germicides and things like that. 
No, it doesn't. It's all symbolic. It's God who does all that. But he gives us these wonderful word pictures to help us see that. When he talks of bones which he has broken, rejoice. David's talking about the whole frame of his body. He was broken. Right? David sinned against God and he was broken because of it. And he could not deal with it. He couldn't face it anymore. He couldn't go any longer with that brokenness. And he asked God to build him back up. He asked God to make him whole again. Because it was only God who could do it. And he did it. He goes on in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. This is a fascinating verse. I grew up the first probably 19 years of my life singing that psalm, never knowing it was a psalm. Right? We did it in church after offering every Sunday. I didn't know it was a psalm until one day I was stumbling through Psalm 51. And I went, oh, cool. That was biblical. The problem was none of us knew it. Nobody had a clue. And it was a challenge. But there's some struggles in this verse that I want to make sure that we're clear on. It's not hard to see the first part and and asking God to create a clean heart. God, clean my heart, clean my soul, my spirit. I really need you to do that daily. I live in the world and it gets dirty. And I make it that way most of the time. But I'm going to be in this world as long as God has me here. So I'm going to have to go to him regularly to help him, have him help me clean it up. This part in verse 11 is, don't cast me away from your presence. That, that's tough. That's what sin does. Sin puts a, a barrier between us and God. He is absolute holy. And he can't have us in sin. It just doesn't work. And that's why he sent Christ to forgive us. And there's a barrier that's created. And until we accept Christ as our Savior, we can't commune with God. And he takes that away. But here's the part that's a little dicey. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. We have to recognize where this is. And this verse, in some cases, is used to explain how you can lose salvation. Right? Don't take your Holy Spirit from me and restore to me the joy of your salvation. People can take that out of context and say told you you could lose your salvation. God can yank the spirit back and remove your salvation. He doesn't say that at all. That is not the case at all. It doesn't even intimate that. He's talking about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That was before Christ came, died on the cross, and was raised for our sin. The Holy Spirit was dispensed in the Old Testament to mediators, to the judges, to the kings, to the prophets, as God chose to use it. It was not theirs like the Holy Spirit becomes ours after salvation. And God could take it back. We know that because he did that to Saul, right? He pulled his spirit from Saul and he gave it to David to be the carrier on of the kingdom. It's not the same thing as we see. And David recognized that as well. He wasn't talking about his place with God in this. He was talking about, please don't take that guidance away from me, that wisdom that I desperately need from you. And notice in verse 12, it says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's not talking about, take it, give it, give it, take it, back and forth. Where am I? Am I saved today? Am I not saved today? You know, did I just sin? Now I'm not. What does that look like? He doesn't mean that at all. He's talking about, God, I lost the joy of being with you when I sinned against you. I need you to restore that. I'm in the rightful position of penitence for that. I know it was my fault. 
please God, restore to me your joy. I need that joy back, the joy of your salvation. And sustain me with the willing spirit. Lord, help me to continue on because I'm going to have to get up from my position of penitence in sackcloth and ashes and I'm going to rule your kingdom again if you permit me to. But I need you to sustain me in this because, Lord, I am broken as I ought to be because I created my problem. You did not. And this is what's really neat as we move on to verse 13. Now, this is the promise of renewed service. This is also a danger zone. I see people taking stuff like this out of context as well. As, you know, and it goes on and says, Then, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltedness, O Lord, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. It reminds me of a movie I saw one where a guy was in deep trouble. Right? He got himself in a really bad spot. And he said, God, if you just get me out of this, I'll give $100,000 to the church. He started to get out of it. He's getting closer to the point where he's going to be safe. God, I can't wait to get there and give that $75,000. Got a little bit closer. Man, I, I will write a check for $50,000 the minute I get to this place where it's safe. And on and on and on. This verse is not about, God, if you do this for me, I'm going to do this for you. That's not the point here. The point is that David knew that in the position he was, having sinned against God, having sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, all the people there, he was not capable of teaching anybody about God. He couldn't do it in his current situation. He was not useful to God right then and there. He needed God to show him his forgiveness, to sustain him, lift him up. And he said, now, then I can do it again. This is not about, God, if you'll just do this for me, then I'll do this for you. This was about, I am a broken man. I cannot do this. It will only happen if you bring step A, then I'll be allowed to do it again. So be careful with these things. It's not about us saying, God, if you make me a great orator, I will teach everybody about you. It's about, God, if you'll just please give me the ability to reach the people and the ability to see them, you can have me. And that's what David was saying here. I want to teach transgressors. I am a chief transgressor. I know what it's all about. I can do that. I can show them where I went wrong, God, but first you're going to have to pick me up because right now I can't. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. And I can't right now because of where I'm at. But I will when you lift me up. The blood guiltedness that he talks about here really translates into the being guilty of shedding blood in murder. We know David shed blood. Right. Some of the first stories we hear about David is shedding blood. He starts out with lions and bears. He chops off a guy's head. That's pretty good stuff. Right? That's not what he's asking for. It's not the blood guiltedness of him as a soldier. It was the fact that he sent an innocent man to his death so he could have his wife. That's what he was begging for God to take him away from. Oh, Lord. Open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise, for you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. 
a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Oh, that is just music. God doesn't want our stuff. He doesn't want us to go out and get a lamb or pigeons or bread or oil or a calf or whatever it is. He doesn't want those. He wants our heart. He wants a broken and contrite heart. He's never delighted in sacrifice. King Saul found that out. In 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, Samuel speaking to King Saul, who's being punished now. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed than that of the fat of lambs. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul was providing all sorts of sacrifices. They had gone into an area. God had told them to wipe it out. I don't want anything left. Not people, not stuff, not animals. Nothing. I want it gone. Saul just didn't think he needed to get rid of everything. Maybe a little gold for the treasury, though. Not for me. For the treasury. Maybe a a few people to help feed the, the kingdom. Uh, Maybe some animals, but just because we can sacrifice them. No, God said, I want it wiped out. I don't want a trace to remain. Saul wouldn't do it. And with that and things that led up to that, Saul lost the kingship. God doesn't want sacrifices. God doesn't want our offering. God doesn't want us to give more because we've sinned more and we think that will make him happier. God wants our contrite heart. Look at what it cost Saul. What could it have cost David? But he brought it. I mean, he brought the the contrite heart back. And then he finishes up by petitioning for national restoration. Lord, don't let this stop with me. By your favor to do good to Zion, in verse 18, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. It's a byproduct. When the hearts are all right, God can rejoice in sacrifices. But you know what? He'd be fine without him. He doesn't care. He wants us. He wants you. He wants me. He wants us to have the right heart. So what does it come down to? Focus on God. Ask for forgiveness. Confess. Ask for help to remain clean. Be prepared to give back. And don't forget the church body, your neighbors, your city, state, nation, and world. Do you guys recognize any similarities between this and the prayer that Jesus prayed in Matthew? Recognize God for who he is. Ask for freedom. It's almost the same type of pattern. We're going to learn more about that next week and actually try to focus on some concepts on not just where we've come from with prayer, but how to pray. We're going to try to dig in and give you guys some more, I I hope this has been helpful, but maybe even some more basic guidelines, points to look at. But, But I hope what you've seen is that the prayers to God that he makes sure we see and recognize all have this type of format. Recognize him. Don't forget to ask for forgiveness. Confession is good for your soul. It is so good. Ask for help to keep doing right. Help others, right? Christ said, 
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. David talked about trying to, you know, God, if you can help me, I can now be able to go out and reach others for you. I'm not... I'm not going to hold back, right? I'm not going to hold back to help others until you forgive me. I recognize until you forgive me, I can't. can't do that. No matter what you've done, God can forgive you. Sin is waiting for you by your own design around every corner. Don't forget, you have all sorts of friends around you that want to help you. Nathan was absolutely critical in Psalm 51 happening. If Nathan had not gone to David or some other messenger from God, we wouldn't have read Psalm 51, and it may have completely changed the entirety of David's lineage. But God wasn't happy to just let David go. There's friends every day that come to you to try to help you listen to them. God is a wonderful and great God. I'd love for you guys to take just a few minutes now while the worship team comes up and just spend some time before him. Just think through this prayer in Psalm 51 or the Lord's Prayer in Matthew and just see where God has you and where he wants to meet you right now.